Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Optic Theology Podcast. It's a podcast where John Sikotowski, Nick Gibson, and me, Andy Schmidt, discuss some of the hard theological and cultural topics in the Bible, bringing three different perspectives from three different generations. John couldn't be with us today, so it's just me and Nick. And today we're doing part one of our two-part, um, I guess, little series called What is Hell? And uh, today me and Nick are going to be talking about what is the traditional viewpoint, uh, uh, the viewpoint of how that's called traditionalism. Um, and so I've been meeting with Tom Flaherty, who is on our Charismatic Church podcast, and he he's an annihilationist. And so when he told me about his viewpoints on annihilationism, I, I'd never heard it. I grew up in the church. I'd never heard that viewpoint on hell. Um, and I remember I told my dad and my dad, he was freaked out. He was like, you know, Tom's a her- like a heresy. You can't, you can't, you can't listen to people like that. So, but it, but right now, based upon what Tom has told me about annihilationism, he makes some very compelling points. Um, and I'm not sure why. When I talk to a lot of people about it, they get their undies in a bundy and act like it's the most crazy heresy they've ever heard of in their life. Um, so he actually told me that I, I, I can't talk to you about it, Nick, until I finish reading his book. So I did. Um, and right now, if I, if I'm, if I'm being honest, I'm, I'm leaning a little bit more towards the annihilationist side, but I haven't heard a real good case for traditionalism. And so I know Nick, you would consider yourself a traditionalist, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I never want to defend a view called a traditionalist. Um, okay. I'd prefer the orthodox view because <laughs> orthodox means correct. Um, but I, I mean, you could call it the majority view or most people just call it the eternal conscious torment. That The idea okay. is, is that the, the penalty for sin, if it is not absorbed in the atonement of Christ, um, is justly eternal mm-hmm. or everlasting, is technically more correct. Okay, so you just want to start with giving uh, what is the traditionalist or the orthodox orthodox what what is your viewpoint of hell and how does hell work within your within this viewpoint yeah and where did it come from so the the majority view historically in the christian church has been um what has been called by modern people eternal conscious torment that is that um upon our deaths all people are raised to life that is that life is ever human life is everlasting it's not eternal Eternal means with outside of time or without time, so it would have already existed everlastingly. So everlasting means it keeps lasting and doesn't stop. So human beings are created um, for everlasting life, and and in that um, way of saying it, that for everlasting life means with. So I know that some annihilationists make the distinction that human beings were created for eternal life, for everlasting life, but not with everlasting life. Meaning, God has to give it to you after you die. You don't just automatically have it, right? To me, that's like that's splitting a hair that's not even a hair, right? Like the the idea is is that no, God has predetermined that because we bear the image of God, um, our lives are eternally or everlastingly important, and that all human beings will be raised for the purpose of judgment. And upon that raised or like post mortem life. It, that life will either be in, etern- in eternal conscious torment, that is the punishment for sin, or in um, eternal relationship to God, eternal bliss, eternal reward, however God orders that. 
So we will either get what is what we deserve, or we will or we will get what Christ deserves, which is heaven. So can I make real quick? I I think for people who don't know what annihilationism is, I'm going to try my best to sum it up real quick. So so this makes a little bit more sense, mm-hmm. um, and you can tell me if I'm a little bit off. But I ba- basically, it's the idea that that our human souls are not eternal, and that when we die, if we don't believe in Jesus, and if we're not a Christian, and we die, we go to hell. We then are tormented for the sins that we committed on earth. And then after a certain period of time, based off of your sins and whatnot, you're annihilated from existence and you're never, you know, you're just annihilated. You're gone. And so that that's uh, that's that's the annihilationist viewpoint. And when we have Tom on, he'll he'll be better at explaining it. But that's kind of a, a little summary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there. I mean, like all views, there are numerous versions of all of these views. Right. So there are m- numerous versions of annihilationism. So some people literally yeah. believe that if you die and you aren't in Christ, you just won't write nothing. You're done. Yeah. Right. Others believe that you'll be raised for a specific period of time. Um, and then you'll then you'll experience what's called the second death. And so annihilationists will take the word that take the word death there very literally. That that is an extinguishing of your existence. So um, and so as I've talked to some of them, what what most seem to tend to believe is that um, there is a certain amount of punishment due for sin, but it can't be eternal. It can't be truly torment and truly eternal. And when people's gut reaction is that can't be right. The annihilationists can say to them, you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Each person will be punished exactly as long as they deserve, which we don't know how long that is. Um, and then they will cease to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're given everlasting life for the duration of their punishment, and then their life is extinguished. Um, so, in fact, I, I talked to one annihilationist one, more, one time, and I said, and he he had a master's in divinity. He was a very well-trained person. I said, okay, so let me ask you this. Are you open to finding out from God that that duration of time is in fact eternal or everlasting? So, if, like, if you say uh, annihilationism, the person will be punished for the appropriate amount of time, and then their life will be extinguished. And I said, well, what if that appropriate amount of time is everlasting? Mm. They would say, well, I mean, I I can't literally know that's not true. It just seems like it's not true. And in that sense, my view would be the same as theirs. I mean, I don't think God is going to punish anybody longer than is their just desserts. That is what they what they exactly and perfectly deserve for their sins. Both annihilationists and the and orthodox people believe that. The question is, how long do we human beings think that is That's what I was in God's ask. divine yeah. mind? And most annihilationists will say, well, it can't be eternal. You can't live less than 100 years and not accept Christ, but not do anything spectacularly awful. And the duration of your eternal of your conscious torment is literally everlasting. It just can't be. That's too disproportionate. The, that's not a crazy thought. I don't think that's no, a crazy thought. No, I don't. Now, it might be a worldly and man-centered thought, but it's not a crazy thought from within the world of the curse that we're reasoning through. The, the question How, is... Yeah, I mean, the, the question is... Um, is who you've offended and the thing you've sinned in a multiplier to your damnation? Mm. 
if God's world is infinitely valuable, if we are treasonous to sin against it, and what we sin against isn't just certain temporal things, but image-bearing creatures, and the divine person himself with every sin, is it possible that the multipliers of those very quickly become an everlasting punishment that we deserve, right? And I think that that's perfectly likely. In fact, much more likely. That That's not why I hold the view. I hold the view because I think Scripture teaches it. But if I'm asked to give a philosophical defense, I would, I would. There's certain ways that I would go about that down that alley. So let's. I want to go back to the the beginning of the Bible in Genesis because when I was reading through Tom's book and talking with him about it, and, and Tom's the only resource I have on annihilationism, so he's quite thorough. I yeah, I mean, he, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Um, he he makes this argument, and it's very compelling to me because. I've always wondered what the point, what's the point of the tree of life. And so Tom talks about the tree of life. There's two trees in the Garden of Eden. There's the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil, and then there's a tree of life. And you can't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then they do it, and then they're kicked out. And in Genesis 3, it says, lest lest you eat from from the tree of life and live forever, like you got to be like the God kicks them out, says, "Lest they eat from the tree of life and live and live forever." Right? Is that correct? That seems to be yeah. That's what a lot of people assume is is happening there. So that that so when Tom was explaining to me, basically what I was hearing him say is that that because they to live forever, they needed to eat from the, they needed like an external uh, revelation or an external thing to help them live forever. So that would in that scenario would have been the tree of life, and you eat from that then you're able to live forever. God had to kick them out to get them away from the tree of life so that they couldn't do that. And so the assumption there would be that our souls then are not eternal and we need we need an external thing or, or something that can help us. So in the New Testament, that would have been Jesus. And when we accept Jesus, now we are eternal beings. And so that was very compelling because I was always like, what was the point of the tree of life? So I, I wonder, what what would you say the point of the tree of life is and how would you combat that? that viewpoint on on the souls being eternal or not eternal i think that's feels like that's what this whole uh debate like hinges on yeah i mean i think that that argument proves way too much right first of all this is the only mention of this in the entire bible and i I would be really careful about prognosticating too much from it but the the assumption here is is that this is about souls well why believe that i mean the annihilationist doesn't believe that in all kinds of other passages well, I believe that this is about souls. I mean, this appears to mean that if Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the of life, they physically would not die, naturally. They'd be like, I don't know, Tolkien's elves or something. That their, their body wouldn't go through the process of decay and they would never die. Which is a little bit odd because most people, including annihilationists, usually believe that Adam and Eve were created so that they would not physically decay and die. And it was when sin entered the world that death entered the world. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so what, so which, yeah. which makes for kind of a weird thing. Okay, so the tree of life is there for after they sin, then they can eat of it and live forever. Or was the idea that they wouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at first, at least. And, and then as time went from... on, they would keep eating from the tree of life so that they could keep living, that it was a kind of internal nourishment for them. Here's the answer. We don't know. The text does not tell us any of these things, right? We, we know that the human beings transgress against the first tree, and so they're kept from eating from the second tree. We know that. We do know that it means something like that they would live forever, but, it, but 
reading reading souls into this passage rather than the physical life is committing the exact fallacy that annihilationists turn around and accuse the church fathers of, that they had a, quote, Greek idea of the eternal soul. In the immediate context of this passage, it seems to say they would physically live forever. And if they ate from the, ate from the tree of life, they would live physically forever. They would keep on living physically. There's no mention of soul in this passage other than the breath of God giving Adam life. And so, I mean, I just think it's reading way too much into this passage. I mean, I, I think there is a problem that the human beings need to physically die. They can't physically live on forever. God doesn't want that or doesn't want it anymore now that sinners enter the world. And so they're driven away from the tree of life. To say that that would have given them eternal life, like in the soulish sense, like with resurrected bodies, that, that kind of, I mean, we're just, we're, we're engaging in category confusions. We're like, we're saying, well, this must be this other thing too. And nothing in scripture says that. And if you look at the history of theology, especially like in the Bible, like Pharisees, Sadducees, that kind of thing, it's these kinds of deductions from passages that don't say that much where people can get really sideways in their theology. Well, so, wouldn't that be the exact same thing that the tr- traditionalist is doing and saying that because we're created in God's image, we are eternal? Like that doesn't necessarily say anything about your soul either. And that's what was confusing to me because that whenever I would read, you know, we're created in God's image, or create them in our image and that that felt like more of like create them in our image in the sense of like their capability to love and feel joy and feel and like and and express these things and and also in the way that like we probably look and and act or whatever but wouldn't that be doing the exact same thing where like that's not mentioning the soul either i don't think you can prove that human beings are created to live everlastingly from that we're creating God's image. No, I don't think that. It so might be. You... It might be true. I think it might be true, and I think I think it might indicate that. But I don't think you can prove it to somebody that doesn't isn't already disposed to believe that. So if annihilationist says, "Well, it doesn't mean that," I mean, I can't prove from it that it does mean that. I mean, th- that's half the half the arguments you get into about biblical texts is they're not questions of deductive reasoning. They're questions of like what you think the language probably means. And sometimes you can solve that analytically by looking at word usage and syntax and grammar and all that right. kind of stuff. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes there just isn't enough text. Like I was, I was reading earlier this this thing about um, Jewish inscriptions and whether Jews believe in, in an afterlife and like what kind of afterlife. Out of 165 million Jews that lived during that period, there's 1,600 grave inscriptions total. 600 of them are completely legible. You can't even tell what's written on them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that gives you a thousand. For 165 million, right? And in that those thousand, they say everything. Some seem to be annihilationists, like you just die and that's it, your life just ends. So that's not really annihilationist, that's just, I don't know, yeah. secular or just like not believing but, anything. Then there's a bunch that are like, you're going on to a better life. Others seem to encourage courage in the hearts of when you enter into your postmortem life. So there's something, but it might not be easy. Look, like they're all over the map. And so, you know, people are like, well, you know, this is what the ancient people thought. Well, are you sure? You know, like, be careful. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think Genesis three is going to solve the question of whether or not human beings were created to have everlasting life as resurrected beings with a soul. I don't think there's that much theology left. So right now, the question is: the human beings are created alive; they've sinned. Now, what's going to happen? Now, what it says is earlier in the chapter is the day you eat of the tree of the good, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, no, you will yeah. surely die. 
right? What does that mean? Right? It, it doesn't literally mean immediate physical death, right? But what does it mean? Does it mean that you'll you'll start to die? Does it, right? People have been speculating about what that actually means for years and years and years, right? Mm-hmm. So then they eat of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they're they're kicked away from the tree of life. So what? So they can't eat it to prevent the certain death that has come from them eating the other tree, it sounds like. So whatever the death is that comes from eating the knowledge tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is acquiring moral knowledge wrongly, that sets into motion a necessary death. Now, if they could have eaten from the tree of life, they could have supernaturally avoided whatever that death first, is. Yeah. And, and, and God didn't allow that, right? So then what, what that is, is played out in the curse. Now you continue to read the Bible. What you find out is people start killing each other and they start dying and they start doing terrible things and they start sinning and so on, right? That's part of this death that enters into the world. Quick. These passages, yeah, need, these passages are literally true in one sense, but they're also mythological in nature. Like they're telling very big stories. Mm-hmm. And so what life and death means in narratives like this isn't like you can't get at it pedantically and be like, what that means is we have eternal souls that's not how passages like this work. It's te- it's telling like a primordial big story. And so what life and death is has to fit within those categories. So I just don't think this is a good proof text for that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I'm just wondering, and this is... But I'm not saying this proves my position either. I'm just, I'm saying, right. that, like, I wouldn't argue from this passage. So, so where, so here's my question for you. You might not know the answer to this, but where, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm just where's the first mention of hell in scripture? Because you were just talking about uh, Jewish people not really knowing what happens in the afterlife. You would think that they would know. Right. So where, do you know where the first mention of hell is and, and what is said about it? Well, it depends on what you classify as that, right? So there are, so what, what ends up happening is all human cultures <coughs> So, for example, one of the things a number of annihilationists believe is that the church fathers believed in the everlasting soul because it's a Greek thought, and they got that from the Greeks. From uh, Plato. That's what they think, right? And I think that that's totally wrong. First of all, the Josephus text doesn't say anything like what these folks say it does. And so when you hear annihilationists talking about the Josephus text that believes in whatever he believes in, just go find the text in Josephus and read it yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Um. It's it's not it's nothing like authoritative on what was believed at the time or anything like that. But the point is is that if if you if we look at anthropological history, almost every group of human beings throughout the entire history of the world believed in some kind of afterlife. That's why people were buried with their dogs, and in some cases, their wives were killed so they could be buried with them. And people were buried with food and with tools and personal items and things that make it look like even like ten twenty thousand years ago, people were being buried with some expectation of an afterlife, of all different kinds of afterlifes, depending on the religiosity that they were connected to. The idea that the Greeks were the first people that thought that souls went on is just manifestly false from the history of the world, of everything we know about anthropology, right? So so the, the question is, if the Jews didn't believe that, why didn't they, and what's the evidence of that, right? Now, what ends up happening, and this happens in the Bible too, is, is that words for these profound theological things that everyone believes in end up becoming shared words. And so what counts as what depends on what you think already. So for example, in the Old Testament, when um, people are referring to like the depths of, of despair or the bottom place of death, they use the word sheol, right? Well, is sheol hell? Is sheol, right? 
So annihilationists believe that Sheol isn't hell, right? Sheol is sometimes translated like the place of the dead or the depths of the earth or something like that, right? Even the when grave. Jesus describes hell, Disney, it, I, tell me if I'm wrong, but Gehenna, and isn't that just right. like a place outside the city walls of Jerusalem where they throw their trash? Right. So, so there's not like a specific... It's the place it's of It's just like a way to fire. describe... Yeah. Right. Well, and there's a number of places where the word Jesus uses is literally the word Hades. Oh, yeah. Literally the word Hades, which is a mm-hmm. Greek word. And a Greek... I mean, like, that. the thing that... like not. I mean, in some ways it angers me when annihilationists say, you know, it's a Greek concept, this idea of eternal... Right? Jesus literally used a Greek concept when he said the word. Like, he's borrowing a word that they all know the meaning of. And he's like, this is what happens, right? Mm-hmm. And then we and then we say, and then annihilationists will often say, well, you know, Hades was this or that, and this is what people believe. Well, Hades was hell. Like, it was the underworld. It was where you went to be lost forever. That's what it meant. Now, in Greek culture, it wasn't... See, the, see one of the reasons why the parallel between Greek culture is difficult is... The reason why Jews didn't believe the Jews and Jewish fathers didn't go along with Greek culture was because Hades was morally neutral. Like there were certain reasons why you could escape it, but Hades is just where everybody went. It was like the catch-all. It was the place of the dead. And so when you died, you oh, went so to everybody Hades. goes to Hades no matter what they believe. Yeah, I mean, or what not they think. not technically. I mean. There are demigods that escape it. There are, sure. in certain mythologies, if you're like a very successful warrior or something, you escape Hades. But for the most part, everybody goes to Hades. And there's no savior, and there's no salvation, and there's nothing like that. It's just the underworld. And the god Hades gets you, right? And when you and when you escape it, where do you go? I, I know This isn't real, but it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, in Roman mythology, it was Elysium. I mean, it, it's, diff- it's sort mm. of different. And there's more than one place you can go. Because like... You can be made a demigod, or you can just be sent into the golden fields of Elysium, which is a place of warriors. And there's, like, there's a number of different views. Yeah. Right. And so, um, but but the fact that Jesus uses the word Hades doesn't mean that he believes the Greek mythology. He's referring to uh, the place of the dead where people go to be lost. Right. And I wouldn't argue directly from him using the word Hades that Jesus believes like in Greek death mythology. What, that word stands in for something he's trying to convey, right? To the to the to the Greeks, right? I mean, was what, did he use that for the purpose of speaking to the Greeks? I don't think so. I mean, Jesus uses the word Hades as his word for hell. Yeah, fairly fairly uniformly, I think. So this is an this is interesting because the most famous Bible verse in the world is a John three sixteen. Uh, for whoever believes in Jesus will not perish and have eternal life. That's like the gist of it. For some reason, I'm blanking on the whole thing. Um, and I told, I was like, Tom, what about, you know, this? And he was like, well, that actually, he, he said that that verse actually proves his point that Jesus uses the word perish um, and not have eternal life. And so what, what would you, what would you say to that? What, like, what would you say to that argument of like, there seems to be a couple times in scripture where like the word perish is used or, or like there's another one that, that Tom talked about and he'll be better in explaining it. But like what what is Jesus saying there then? Like you will perish and not have eternal life. Um, so. Uh, 
okay so the the word so this is a fairly common argument and um so there's this word um apolumi apolumi or apolumi um which means which means destroy right um but it mean but it's like so okay let, let me just let me just read for you so this is the uh, B BDAG. So this is the academic Greek lexicon that everybody uses. It's it's the standard Greek lexicon, okay? And so if you read through, like, um, definition one is to cause or experience destruction, right? Which basically means uh, it can mean to be killed, it can mean to be put to death, it can mean to be thrown out of your job, um, it can mean to be um, to be all kinds of things related to that, like destroyed. So yeah. it says in um, Corinthians, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That's the same word. So so like to destroy okay. somebody's argument, right? To wreck mm -hmm. it, right? And then there's to perish or to be ruined. So like if you like lose all your money, you become a pauper. You've been aplumied. You, aplumied. You've been ruined, right? Mm -hmm. You've been put in a state of ruin. Um, it can be for something to pass away. So like... um if like there's this like city that was really beautiful and then ultimately it passed away like it like it waned and dwindled and no longer existed right so yeah. there's the that verb apolumai um is a is a general verb for destruction it's like mm -hmm. the worst thing that can happen happens now annihilationists tend to argue that what that means though is literally destruction like like you would destroy something if you destroy something, it no longer exists, right? But here's the thing. There's a little bit of a slate of hand there because there's still the deductive logic of because you destroy it, it no longer exists. Okay, wait a second. That's not what the verb literally means. The verb means to destroy or ruin something. It doesn't actually mean to extinguish it. Right, it means if you it, destroy, you wreck it. If, you, if you don't get your job, like if you don't have, your job still exists and so do you. Right, that, right. Yeah. You're, and and um, I think eternal conscious torment is a good example of being ruined. Over and over again. Yeah, like it's ruined. So I mean, you know, like if you're disgraced, if your life is ruined, you're still living, but you're living in a state of ruin. The idea that this verb, apolume, objectively states that the thing it's referring to comes into the state of no longer existing is not true. It's not part of its definition, right? Mm -hmm. Now you can say, but Nick, if you destroy something, it no longer exists. Colloquially, that's true. But are you going to make a technical argument about what Jesus means here from his from his use of this verb? Does that work semantically? I don't think it does, especially because there's there's another place where Jesus literally says um, that some will go into everlasting life and the others into everlasting punishment. Where does it say that? Matthew 25. So Matthew 25, 46 says, so, so this is the sheep and the goats, right? At the yeah. very end of sheep and the goats, it says, and these, that is the sheep or the goats, will go away to eternal punishment but the righteousness to eternal life. Well, that's that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> that's interesting because I, I so when I was I was trying to find verses. Um, and there's and, no and definition. Tom, there's no definition of um, kolesin, which is the word for punish, that isn't punish. Like if you go through the lexicon and you look at the different definitions or semantical range of that word. It's not like there's a there's a meaning of that word that isn't punishment. Mm -hmm. Every de there's only two definitions, and both are punishment, right? And so, and then it uses the generic word for everlasting or eternal. So it's, there's everlasting punishment and there's everlasting life, 
and the goats go to everlasting punishment and the sheep go to everlasting life. It's, it's very straightforward. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and that, and like, there's no, there's nothing to be played there. All you, the only thing you do is you say, well, it's a parable. Parables are non-literal by nature. And so maybe this isn't literal, but the problem is, is that yes, parables are non-literal by nature, but they make a literal point. Usually the literal point is literally the last thing being said, which is this verse, which is, the most literal thing in the whole story, which is, this is what's going to happen, guys. There's going to be a judgment in the end. Jesus is going to separate the human beings that have died, like sheep and goats, like a shepherd's shepherds, sheep and the goats, and the end result will be one will go to eternal punishment and one will go to everlasting or eternal life. Mm-hmm. And so eternal life is juxtaposed against eternal punishment. Right? So... That's pretty straightforward. Now, there's only one verse that literally says it exactly just like that. And so sometimes annihilationists will be like, well, you know, is that enough evidence? And especially when they will marshal other verses that use apolumai, that means destroy. And I'll say, look, all these other places, Jesus basically says destroy. And then this one place, he says everlasting punishment, right? But like I said, the word apolumai is, means a bunch of different things. And it means to ruin someone or to be ruined because just, you know, like even in our language in English, destroy, like you can like insult and humiliate someone and say, I destroyed him. Right. Or I'm going to destroy that guy. That doesn't mean literally you're going to break him into a thousand pieces. So he doesn't exist anymore. It means you're going to wreck his life. So it's not worth living anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. The, 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 that word ruin or destroy in other languages has multiple functional contexts too. The phrase everlasting punishment does not. It has only one functional context. That is that the punishment is going to be everlasting for those Christ classifies as goats, which are those who, who saw him, who didn't see him and didn't, didn't yeah. act in faith. They didn't have any faith. And so there was no, there was no evidence of salvation. They weren't saved. He never knew them. Okay. That's interesting. So I want to, because he was, he'd also brought up the passage in, in revelation that was, the lake of sulfur mm-hmm. um, that burns forever and ever. And he, he says that that's what would you ever use that as a example for your viewpoint or not? Only to fill it out, not to prove it. Okay. Cause I mean, what you just said was basically like pretty point blank, which, which I remembered. I was like, I know that there's like, somewhere in the Bible where it's it like pretty specifically says people are going to burn in hell forever and ever like that. I knew that that was somewhere I had no idea. I yeah. couldn't find it. You have to put a bunch of verses together to get that. But yes, I mean, you, you see the, the that's the thing you have to, 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 and so this is why like there is some confusion about this because the way Jesus uses the word Hades, the, the way he uses the word Gehenna and the way he uses this word everlasting punishment, you have to like put all that together into a theology of what happens everlastingly to the unsaved, to those who are not reconciled to God, who he doesn't know in that sense, who they don't belong to him, right? And who have been traitors in his creation have rejected the purpose of the image of God. What happens to them, right? And the answer Mm -hmm. is judgment, right? And a certain punishment. Now, what is that punishment, right? Now, listen, I don't in principle have a problem with the idea that God punishes everybody to the extent to which they deserve and then they are finally destroyed. Fine. 
But the question deserve is, in like in like air quotes because we don't know how much everybody right. deserves. That's right. well, the no, question. What, what I'm yeah. saying is, I think what Jesus teaches is that 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 is an everlasting right. punishment. Okay, so you're you deserve an everlasting punishment for rejecting an everlasting God. Um, yeah, I mean that's a co- very colloquial way to put it, but generally yes. speaking, yeah, because because I mean think about this: we, we everybody believes this. Like what you do is also relative to what you sin against, right? So like if you if you like um so like uh, let me let me use a really crass example here okay i'm gonna use this is this this is a a, a, this is very but i want you to i do want people to feel this okay so like if you if a boy has sex with his girlfriend and it's consensual right christianly speaking they've done something wrong right but it's not rape it's not sexual assault it's nothing like that right okay now same boy sexually assaults a girl right she doesn't really want to have sex with him but she he kind of like gets her to do it or whatever right that's worse, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if that girl was his sister, it's even worse. Mm-hmm. And if that girl was his seven-year-old sister, it's even worse. Mm-hmm. So it's the same, you see, it's the same act. But who you were doing the act against, the relationship between the two, the dignity of the other person, the, so like in the case of the little girl, the innocence that should be respected, right? Th- the status mm-hmm. of that other figure figures into how heinous the crime is right now take all that out now every sin is against an everlastingly perfect god who has created you with all grace given you everything and you are not you're sinning against him you're sinning against image bearers the rippling of your sin is going out and hurting more and more and more image Mm -hmm. bearers in like an infinite outflowing of the concentric circles of your sin you're doing it constantly you're sinning against yourself who is an image bearer like like it doesn't take much of an imagination of a multiplier to imagine an everlasting amount of guilt. Hmm. Right. So, and that's one of the reasons why, like I talked to one of your friends recently who was struggling with the doctrine of hell. And I, I told him that he should read a book by Jonathan Edwards called the justification of God and the damnation of sinners. He's almost, he's almost done with it. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why I mean, it's not a super long work, but what basically what Edwards says is the reason why people, the reason why people struggle with the idea of eternal conscious torment is because they've never really understood the heinous nature of sin. That yeah. human beings fundamentally are sin minimizers. And if in your mind you are you are just mentally minimizing sin, and then somebody says, look, the punishment is eternal conscious torment. You're like, that's right. crazy. There's no way. That, well, maybe you don't get it, man. Maybe you have no idea. I mean, that's why I think Paul says in Romans 3 that... I mean, Romans 1 through 3 basically is this long argument of, like, you are so much worse than you ever imagined. This is why I think it's so important to share the entire gospel. This is why I hate what the, what we do in, and I'm not going to name, in, in movements downtown and in, like, in millenn- millennials do and Gen Zs do it all the time, where they say, like, have you sin like when sharing the gospel they they don't understand total depravity they don't understand sin and they don't understand what it does so people minimize all these little sins just like you said and so when you say and then and then they say well how can a loving god send people to hell when the real question is how could a loving god send people to heaven and 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 so that right. just yeah Whatever i mean god that gets sends me to heaven is going to be there like right heaven is going to be a place where there where there is no law because no one who is there needs one like only a very yeah. certain kind of creature can get into that place and not ruin it. Yeah. Right? It's like pe- people have now, now what conscious torment is, is also like Jesus doesn't totally explain that. 
So, for example, in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis postulates that maybe eternal conscious torment is the eternal torment we will give with our own consciences that are turned away from God. So, like, he, he talks yeah. about, like, people being in the city of the underworld, right, or, like, his hell, and they're basically left alone with their own minds forever. And he's like, it's a perfect torment. Because the, the more your mind turns away from God, the more it turns in on itself in a circular kind of insanity. And yeah. so you go more and more crazy forever and ever and ever. And in doing so, you like everything that's good you see as an offense and like an offense against you. And you grow more bitter and more bitter and you turn around in your mind again and again and again and again. And you just essentially until there's nothing left of you, you just kind of go crazier and crazier and crazier. Right. Now, I don't that's... think I mean, Jesus wow. never says that, obviously. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I mean, Jesus uses the metaphor of fire. Right. Yeah. And so, and the metaphor of darkness and the metaphor mm. of a worm that doesn't die. So part of this argument gets, gets wrapped up in the metaphors that Jesus uses, right? If a, if a fire doesn't go out and a worm doesn't die, what is that supposed to tell us? Right. It's, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's awful. So, so darkness is, is of course isolation, right? Fire means complete destruction. And also I would think intense pain. Like most of us, one of the last ways we want to die is being burned alive, right? It's mm. I think it's supposed to signify very intense pain, and the worm that doesn't die s- sounds to me like getting slowly eaten, yeah, but never being consumed. So I got a question then. When and, and this is not so much about the theology of hell, but it is about the presentation of it, and I wonder, like, as so this is a question that I've, I've I've always wondered because I've had friends who so w- most recently I had a friend who committed suicide who didn't believe in hell at all and he considered yeah. himself a Christian and he didn't believe in hell and I was like right. and I found this out after he committed suicide and I was like okay what if people and there's a lot of young people who don't believe in hell that I'll talk to and they'll just be like, no, uh, hell's not real. Or, or you know, th- there's three ways of looking at hell. There's there's uh, or, traditionalism, annihilationism, and then um, what's less universalism, That's which is love, love wins. Everybody goes to heaven. It's all good, which is clearly wrong. But there's a lot of young people who believe that. According to Jesus, it's clearly wrong. Right? Yeah. So that's it. So wrong. Yeah. Uh, um, so a lot of young people do believe that though. And I don't think that they're doing it because like, I feel like they've been taught the wrong gospel. And so what do we do as Christians to combat that? Because it's like when I'm talking to my friends and I'm like, Hey, like actually there is a hell and like you could, you could be going to hell if you don't follow Christ with your life. They shut down. They like shut off. They don't want to hear anything about hell. They, they shut down to God. They shut down to Jesus. And I'm like, yeah. Some of them don't do that, but you know what I'm saying? And it's like, I think Christians often, especially in America, will take the safe route and we'll be like, you know, in our presentation of the gospel, this is what I hate. So we'll be like, hey, have you sinned? And then everybody can answer yes to that question because who hasn't sinned? Really? Did you lie before? Yes, I've lied. Okay, so you sinned. Okay, God died on the cross for your sins. Now you can go to heaven if you accept him. And it's like, well, asking somebody if they've sinned is so much different than asking somebody if they're a sinner. And Everybody can say that they've sinned. Not everybody's going to say that they're a sinner because that's like a, that's a definitive. That's, that's who you are. And so I'm wondering how do we as Christians, especially in such a PC culture, especially even in Madison where we are, and there's people who listen 
in, in a bunch of different places. But in Madison, where we are, we're extremely PC. You don't want to tell anybody anything that's going to offend them. Do we just have to basically just grow some balls and just be like, okay, this is it? Mm-hmm. Or how do you do it? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, when I was in college, my wife objected to the phrase, <laughs> we need to get some balls. And she's <laughs> like, you know, let's just say spheres. Because, like, women have, like chest and maybe we can just use the metaphor like like everybody's got to have a backbone right yeah and yeah i mean like i i i mean every on some level everybody wants to please the listener right and pleasing the listener is one of the the easiest ways to persuade somebody or get them to agree right mm-hmm. and i understand that and, and and of course like it's very natural to not want to d- defend doctrines that people find unpalatable right now, I, I want to hasten to say that, like, if you know, if Tom Flaherty was on this podcast, who, who's an annihilationist, he he would say, bro, I <laughs> I am totally not saying that sin is not incredibly consequential or that it's not a big thing or like that God doesn't punish it or that God shouldn't punish it. All I'm saying yeah. is that I don't think that that punishment is everlasting. That's all I'm right. saying. Yeah, right. I don't think Tom Tom's like the right. last person I have ever met that would minimize sin. So I, I right. Yeah. Right. And so. um so I think that I think I do think that that is something that happens in universalism. And I think I also think that there are some people who believe either in annihilationism or eternal conscious torment who just don't talk about hell. They just don't say anything about it. Um, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, like more than a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church in particular taught that suicide was an automatic trip to hell. And the reason they taught that was not because um, Scripture explicitly said it. And it wasn't even because you could you could 100% know it was true, right? Because, I mean, you can't really know that's that's true, right? Mm -hmm. The reason they did it was to help people not commit suicide. Yeah. That was the bit, because, like, listen, man, life was tough in those days. I mean, you think it's tough now. You think that was a good thing to do, though? I don't know. know. Yeah, now, now, on one level, on one level, uh, for a long time, I thought that. I thought that um, suicide was... Because because in some ways suicide is the sin against hope, and so is that the unforg- is that con- would that be considered the unforgivable sin? Uh, no, no, not technically the one in the scriptures. No, blaspheming the oh, Holy Spirit. Is. Okay, um, yeah. but if like it, but suicide is the sin against hope. However, um, L- Luther's argument about why he rejected that teaching was that he essentially he made an argument about demons, like that, like that if somebody was attacked in the woods. And like the attacker grabbed a person's sword and killed them with it. Would you blame that person for being killed by his own sword? Or would you blame the, the attacker? And he said, Satan, mm. Satan will like attack people and if infect their hearts with a gloom. And sometimes he'll overpower them. And if he overpowers them like a thief in the woods, God isn't going to send people to hell if they were overpowered by Satan. Right. And but if you have I think some Christ, people, I think some people will argue that relative to like mental illness, for example, like if, that if uh, mental illness overcomes you, then God isn't going to count that as the sin against hope. I feel like that's a dangerous path to go down because because it's like, and, and and I'm not the Catholic people who are saying that, you, you know, commit suicide, you go to hell. That's right. in the Bible. I don't think that's true. Um, but I feel like that's that's very dangerous because you can, I mean, that's like our whole problem right now is that everybody thinks that no matter, you know, people commit suicide all the time and you hear it all the time. People are like, they're in a better place. They're in a better place. And it's like, well, that not, it might not be true. They could be in hell and you could just be wrong. And right. if you have Christ in you, 
are you even able to be defeated by a demon? This goes back to our, our question on like the perseverance of the saints and uh, what what is that called? Calvinism and salvation. Could you even could you even be killed by a demon if you truly are saved? Yeah, but I, so I want to go back to what you said just a minute ago because yeah. you're you're kind of making my point, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> because if if I if if you say, hey, do you really want to teach people that? Um, if they commit suicide, they could they could be in heaven, right? Because that has implications, like pastorally, about how they'll think. And exactly, sure. that's the whole point. That's and that's the point I was making the other way. When the Catholic yeah. Church um, threatened people that if you committed suicide, you'd go to hell. Part of the purpose of that was not just whether or not it was true, but what it would do in the lives of people. They wanted right. it to help prevent people from committing suicide, right? And in order to do that, there was this whole theology built around it and so on. And I think that people believed that, right? I, I also think that it may have been wrong. They may have not had a proper understanding of what we now call mental illness. They may have not had a proper understanding of what what a demon, what demonic activity could do in the human mind. And mm-hmm. I, I do think that, like, I do think that there are going to be people that are saved, like, and you wouldn't have thought so. Really? I think that, yeah, I do. Because I think that, I think that all of us are saved on the basis of faith that if Jesus wanted to reject it and say that's not real faith, he could. Like, I mean, I can't think of anybody I know whom Jesus couldn't find a reason to say, yeah, you know, your faith isn't really faith. But I feel like that's also dangerous to say because when Jesus is talking about the gates and the na- narrow gates and the wide mm-hmm. gate, it's like the narrow path and the wide path, too. And I think like First John and maybe James is a lot about of how can you be sure of your salvation and like things to look at in your life, like what, what areas are you growing in, what things are, are proof. And it And it feels like to me... The, the reason why I feel like we should shy away from that is because, and this is only for young people. I, I don't know what old people think about this stuff. I, I <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. They, they can think what they want. But young people will take any and every opportunity to sin. I do it all the time. And if I feel like, okay, I have faith, like I can now just go and, you know, just, you know, do drugs and get drunk and go smash every girl I look at. Um, some people aren't going to like that sentence. I just had a big conversation with my family last night about how much, whatever. Um, so yeah, people, people are looking, no, I think, I think what you're talking about is a universal human principle, Andy. I think human beings are rationalizers. They are looking, they're looking for ways to hide in the mob and say, I'm fine. You can't touch me. And people honestly think that they're going to stand before God and they're going to be able to speak to him in such a way as that he won't be able to decently punish them. And a huge part of coming to faith and coming to salvation is realizing that that is unmitigated folly, that you are you are totally wrong about that. Um, and I think that there's t- two of the greatest literary examples of this. One is in the Bible and is the book of Job, right? All the way through the book of Job, Job is making an airtight case that he deserves an audience with God. And if he talked to God, he would ask God for an answer. He wouldn't even ask God to take away his suffering. He'd just say, ask him why he was suffering. And he wanted an audience to go with God because he thought it would turn out well. And the whole time, we, the reader, think it would go well because we know what God's doing. He's entertaining the accusation of the Satan, that is the accuser, and he is subjecting Job to this suffering for the purposes of his own glorification and pleasure, right, as he is refuting Satan, right, with this man's life. And we're like, you know what? If this guy got to talk to God and he found that out, um, he might win. 
you know <laughs> like yeah. who knows yeah and you get to the end of the book and god just asks him like 60 questions about like where were you when i created stars and animals and yeah. planets and and job he like, like wrecks him yeah. he like wrecks him bro. job's like oh crap right yeah <laughs> the second one that i really like is in the book um till we have faces by c.s lewis and in it there is this character um or or you will, who is this, this queen and all the while in her life she's creating this like lament to the gods this like building her case against the gods because they treated her so unfairly and there's this there's this place at the end where she has this dream where she finally stands before the gods and makes her accusations right and she like reads it and she's like getting more agitated and more agitated and, and like she realized, like, finally the gods stop her, and she realizes she didn't just read it once. She read it, like, a hundred times. And every time she read it, she was screaming more and more and more, and she had no idea what she was doing. And th- that's where the, like, the, the punchline of the novel comes, where she says, I realize, how, I- how could we talk to the gods face-to-face until we have faces? Like, mm-hmm. she, she realized that, like, as a sinner she was so wrapped up in the insanity of her own self-justification, her own yeah. view of the world that was totally wrong. Yeah. And therefore, to prove, yeah. right. And therefore her idea of like how she was wronged and how, how she was right and all these things are just complete right. falsehoods. And so she doesn't even understand she's been digging her, her grave her whole life. And so then when she finally stands before the gods, she's screaming and yelling and like, she's trying to, she thinks she's making this really good argument, but she's really just raging. And she realizes that like, she isn't a, enough of a being to even have a consciousness and a self to stand before the gods and even make an argument. Yeah. And he's like, if, if the gods don't make me into someone who has a face, I can never face them. Right. And yeah. And, and both Which is what you would call godliness and, and, and yeah. holiness and becoming ultimately like it's what I would call glorification. It is the okay. final end of God's transformation of us into our eternal state. At which point we'll have what what Lewis would have called we will have faces, like we will yeah. be our real selves, mm-hmm. in some meaningful sense. In a new body, right? Are we have what, what do you think that's going to look yes. like? Um, it will be, uh, I don't know. It'll be Michael Jordan's body. We'll be dunking on each other. Maybe I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. I dare not. I I don't really want to speculate that much. I, I mean, I always <laughs> think it'll be like bigger and younger looking. I don't know. Yeah, who knows what they'll look like? What be yeah. like? So, so anyway, as this relates to, as this relates to hell, one of the things I, I struggle with is um, I don't want to get rid of a doctrine because I don't like it. And so, you know, like, and I'm open to admitting that, that it's partly emotional for me. That like what I know I want to do is please my neighbor. I, what I know I want to do is say, oh, God's not mean. He would never do that. Like, you're so right. God is love. God's so loving. Right. And I and I know that this doctrine is unpopular. I know that people don't want to hear it. I know that I know all that. And so because in my heart, I want to minimize this, but I also know what human beings are like. They're always minimizing the word of God. Hmm. I find myself wanting to be really, really, really careful because if I minimize something that's true, I'm going to lose something of the glory of God. And I'm going to admit into my life, something of the horrors of hell. Like I'm yeah. like if I if I let it go, I'm admitting to a falsehood, and I'm blocking myself off from some some of the glory of God, and I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. So so I, from from a different perspective though, from so I have the opposite problem as you do, 
I don't care what people think. I, I don't give a crap if they don't like me because I tell them that they're going to go to hell. I, I don't care at all. And I think there's a decent amount of people that are like me in, in that way too. But I, I will like purposefully not tell people about God's love or like not do that because I'll be like, they're going to focus way too much on God's love when they should be focusing on the fact that they're a sinner who deserves to burn in hell for eternity. Mm-hmm. Now, like in my opinion, like I feel like yeah. when you share the gospel who, with whoever you're sharing it with, you try to emphasize a different part of the gospel that's going to m- most hit, hit their soul. And, and, it, and, it, and it can be different for everybody. Yeah. And so, but, but I tend yeah. to just kind of forget the people who, who need to hear the love thing, which by the way, is the very thing that I needed to hear to understand the gospel. Um, What's the love which thing is or the interesting, thing? the love thing. Yeah. I was obsessed with the hell thing. I was like, hell, 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 hell. And then as soon as Vince said he loved me, I was like, that's messed up. God doesn't love me. So I, that was kind of the thing for me. So how do you present that? How do you present hell in a way? I, I guess just like, I know it's different for everybody and you have to be like led by the spirit when sharing the gospel and, and, and that kind of thing. But how do you present hell in a way that's true, but also like with, with, also allowing room to be like yeah. hell is this is real but god's love is what over over can overcome that well i mean the only reason why you can't do it right now is just because of people's incredible hypocrisy i mean if you look at woke culture they're willing to damn somebody to public hell because they said the wrong thing that mm. wasn't woke enough they're willing yeah. to like destroy their life destroy their career like shut them down like wreck their name because they like they said something that wasn't sufficiently woke, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm sorry, like that's. So, so why do you so like ask like ask that person why do you think so and so needs to be canceled? Their whole life needs to be canceled because they said a thing. Well, because what they do affects everybody else. It has consequences beyond just the little action that they made. Exactly, and that's, that's... why you're going to hell. <laughs> because that's true about literally everything you've done since the day you were born. God's everything you've done. done. He's and you've done cancel that. culture. Oh, yeah. And, and listen, and, and that's exactly the reason why you should not engage in cancel culture, because the Bible says the right. standard by which you judge, you will be judged. Interesting. So, OK, but it also says, but it also says, Paul also says, and this is why I freaking can't stand about Christians. It also says it is not my job to judge non-believers, but it is your job to judge believers. So yes. I, I'm totally on board. Non-believers, I don't even hold them to a moral standard because they can't even, you know, walk half the time so but but when when but when when in the christian church nobody will judge each other either and it's because like oh don't judge unless you be unless you be judged that kind of thing but like how are we supposed to hold each other accountable you know yeah that would be a great other podcast yeah i know like but like right now what i'm saying is is that when i was in college like in the 90s and it was kind of like, oh, let Bill Clinton have sex with people in the Oval Office. What's the big deal? Like, it was kind of hard to like be like, hey, like things matter. Things morally matter. You need to become much more morally morally serious. People were not very morally serious. Now, with the advent of progressivism and its kind of like cultural ascendancy, and the in the increase of of cancel culture and that kind of stuff, people are adjudicating damnation like judgments on people for yeah. what would have been in most times in the history of the world inconsequential sins, right? And so that incredibly disproportionate um, punishment and people's willingness to like adjudicate that on others ought to wake them up to the idea that like if they think that's right, they have no business arguing that hell isn't right. Huh? Because that's, yeah, for for God to damn you eternally for the like 
like library of Congress volume of your sins. And you're willing to destroy somebody's life over one comment they made on yeah. Twitter. Like, like 30 years ago or something. Yeah. yeah. You're ridiculous. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, that guy did blackface in, in 1974. His life should be ruined. Um, You've told 375 lies this month. Yeah. So, like, who the hell do you think you are? Yeah. Right? So, like, that, I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that people don't want to grapple with. But that's exactly what Romans 1 through 3 is all about, right? It's like, Romans 1 is, like, all about everybody suppresses the truth. And so, therefore, they, like, their mouth, like, they become super wicked. And then chapter 2 is, like, hey, you, you people who think you're righteous, you judge other people. But don't you realize that, like, you've found another way to sin. You've just found a way to do it religiously and morally. So that you look like a good person, but you're really just like those other people. And then chapter three is like, everybody sucks terribly. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you get chapter three, verses 21 and following where it says, and now a righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And then it talks about salvation in Christ, that we can receive a righteousness from Christ because that's the only chance we're going to get it. Like that, mm-hmm. that argument is fundamental to the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel doesn't mean anything without it. And I don't think anybody should back down on the doctrine of hell because, like, like, think about this. Over the last 100 years, really more like almost 300 now, the strain of Christianity, which, I mean, arguably is not Christianity, that we simply refer to as the liberal or the mainline church, they have been for a very long time making Christianity patable to the secular mind, to its what yeah. Friedrich Schleiermacher called um, its cultured despisers. So yeah. people who consider themselves cultured and sophisticated look at Christianity and go, this is, this is stupid. This is so stupid, right? Right. And so for all this time, like, people have been like, well, but we believe what you think. And, like, they've, they changed all their doctrines, right? So, like, they changed a doctrine of origins. They changed doctrine of scripture. They've changed the doctrine of what it means to be Christ. They don't believe in the atonement. They, like— Changed they, the doctrine of hell. They changed the doctrine of hell. They don't believe in the virgin birth. Like, they literally have changed every single doctrine you can imagine and made it acceptable to the modern culture. They've changed the Christian doctrine of sexuality. They have changed literally everything, okay? And um, no one cares. Because what what happens is people look at that church and they go, wait a second. So what you're saying is you believe that Christianity is everything I already believe. Right. So why do I need you? Well, we can enrich your life. Well, I don't freaking care. Who cares? Also, no, you probably can't. Right. <laughs> like, Who cares? Yeah. Right. And so, I, do you it, also? It just isn't the po- case. So, so like now, I'm not saying that there isn't some kind of middle ground. Like, I do think you can contextualize, and and not be unnecessarily weird with your neighbors, but yeah. still be totally a hundred percent faithful to God. But listen, I just believe if you're doctrinally hundred percent faithful to God, you are going to be persecuted. Now. Now, I think an annihilationist who holds to what, okay, dare I say this, biblical annihilationism, which has a really strong view of sin, a really strong view of God's punishment of sin, um, but still believes ultimately that the punishment isn't everlasting, right? That's, yeah. So as biblical a version as you can get of that, right? Sure. That person's still going to be hated too, because their, right. their doctrine of hell is going to still be too much, you know? Yeah, like, hell existing is too much for people. Right. So like... Yeah. And that's why that's what was so confusing about me in the beginning when me and Tom started talking about this and I'd go and talk to other people about it. People would lose their I mean, I'm like my dad flipped out at me. He was like, you got to stop meeting with Tom. Tom's a heretic. And Tom yeah. told me he was like, he was like, people are people are going to think I'm like a heretic. And I was like, why, though? This just sounds like 
either way you go to hell one's for longer than the other one you suck either way like that's kind of what it sounds right. like and you so don't I have don't eternal understand. life you're not connected to god you don't you don't get to receive any of his benefits you are apolumide you are ruined yeah whatever that means so, you're ruined right. right and so it seems like christians are always trying to and it was the same thing with the charismatic church podcast that we did they're trying to find a way to like just tear our tear ourselves apart. Like I, I don't know. It's just like, oh, that person believes this doctrine. Let's just destroy them. And I think that that's important for certain things. Like if you're changing the doctrine of like what the gospel is, or certain things that are just clearly in scripture. But like mm-hmm. something with hell, where you kind of have to like take a stance on on the judgment of sins and kind of go with it. It doesn't feel like this is this is what Tom called, told me. It's a non-essential. It, it's it, this isn't going to like make or break your salvation. And so I don't know. It, it just was, it was frustrating because I listened to a Francis Chan sermon um, that I, I listened to it like once a month because it's one of my favorite ones. And he was talking about like, you, he's like the way that the church should will be known to the world is by how they love each other. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Bible says. It will, will be known by how we love each other. And I'm thinking like, okay, even, even here in Madison, like this is like a, uh, I'll say crap show because we're on the Christian thing, but this is a crap show. This is bad. I mean, like, like all these churches, like don't like each other. Doctrine won't talk to each other. And then people from different churches, you just separate into all these different groups. We don't love each other. So I'm like, when I go try to share the gospel with somebody, I'm like, Hey, come join the church. It's that's like a bad thing. Now it's not like a good thing. Do you think that that's true that all these all these churches don't like each other? Or do you think that that's a secular perception? I think it's true. Like, personally, I think it's true. I, I mean, w- I'm talking about the congregations because I don't think, I think that if the leaders were to come together more often and the leaders were to, were to come out and publicly and be like, listen, we disagree on some of these things, but we agree on the gospel and, and, and we can each help each other and we can each sharpen each other. They never do that. It's like every church for themselves and it's like every man for themselves and how are you supposed to win a war when you, when you, when you, when you don't have a team, when your team's in shambles. And so it's like you can have five players on a basketball court. If they all think that they're supposed to be the top scorer, you're never going to win because nobody's going to pass the ball. Mm-hmm. And so it, it that's I mean, that's kind of what the church has felt like to me in Madison and all around in America. And it's like even I mean, I'll, I'll ask people who aren't Christians. There was a kid that came like they just don't that came to church with us this morning. That's not a Christian. And he, he was just he, they don't really have a high. The church to them is just like it's like the world, except they pretend that they're not. It's like the world where it's like we hate each other, but let's just pretend that we don't. Let's let's hide behind this this thing of like, oh, we love each other. The church is so good. We don't judge each other. But it's like, well, but behind each other's backs, we're going to gossip. So it's just interesting. Like, yeah. talk about annihilationism and everybody loses their crap. And it's like, it just feels like it's not and not enough of an issue yeah. to tear people apart. Yeah, I, I mean, so there's a couple things you said there that I agree with, right? Like, I think that there's more division in the church than Jesus wants. Um, I do think there is division between what you might call the strongly fundamentalist churches. In Wisconsin, most of those are fundamentalist Baptist churches. There's a lot of small fundamentalist Baptist churches, usually less than 100 people. And um, they're very, very conservative, and they think that Europe is the beast, and we're going to very soon have the end times and all that. Um, But, like, these are fairly small churches. There's there's not a lot of them in the city of Madison anymore. There's a few. Um, But the mainstream of the evangelical churches— the pastors know each other. We we give money to a lot of the same stuff. We support um, a lot of d- 
different churches, there's a lot more solidarity between the minority churches um, for, especially for the minority pastors who want like white pastors in their life. I mean, those guys, like they've got a lot of friends and um, like when the COVID thing broke out, hundreds of thousands of dollars flowed to people who needed it through churches and some really cool stuff happened. Our church gave away tens of thousands of dollars. Um, I don't know if we've given over a hundred thousand dollars away yet in COVID, but I, we probably have, if, I mean, I'm sure we have, but you include our international stuff. We've probably given over 200,000 away just this year. Right. So like some of that stuff is just not true, but it's, know? but it's like, that's great. But, but when we were doing the, the charismatic church podcast and people heard you and Tom have a good, a good conversation about something that, you guys don't really agree on at all. Mm-hmm. And a, what the most overwhelming feedback that I got from that was not like, oh, like Nick was right or oh, Tom was right. It was like, it was really refreshing to hear these two leaders in our city come together and, and like, you, like when I was in the room, I was like, what the heck is going on? I, I felt like, I felt like God's love was being shared between you two. And, and it was like, this is really nice. And you don't really get to see that quite often. So it's hard. It's like, yeah, we give money here and we hang out here with these pastors. Like the congregation doesn't get to see that quite often. And so it feels like there's more division than there should be. And I think that if you guys showed unity, I think that the congregations would start to show more unity. And who do you mean by you guys? Well, you're a pastor. I mean, the pastors and the leaders of the churches all all around Madison. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just, what we've been trying to do. I mean, that's why Tom and I did that podcast. That's why I've been playing basketball with him for years. That's why we've yeah. worked together on schools. Like, um, and t- Tom is one of the best leaders in Madison for that. It's one of the reasons why though, I just want to punch him on some of these, some of these doctrinal questions that we have. Um, yeah. like he and I agree. The main disagreements we have are on annihilationism and egalitarianism and a little bit on the charismatic stuff. Not a lot, but those three areas. Right. And, um, yeah, it frustrates the heck out of me, but, um, but I really do think that he loves God and that God is blessing him and that his ministry preaches the gospel and all that. But but I think it's I, one of the things I, I, that, that always does concern me, though, is whenever somebody says this is a non-essential doctrine, yeah. that always bothers me because that that distinction is not in the Bible. Right? Oh, that, like, sure. that, like some doctrines are essential and others are not essential. Uh, and this yeah. is where Christians historically have, have struggled that because part of how we love each other and we try to create unity is that you have to be unified around something. Mm-hmm. And that is the purity of the gospel. So there's this, there's this dialectic between the two of where like on one right. level you want to create unity, but on another, you're trying to create unity around something, which is the gospel, which has to be pure. So you can't and, really create unity by destroying the purity of the truth of the gospel. So at some point you gotta be like, wait a second there, Tiger. No. So one example of this is um, uh, Preston Sprinkle, who has done a bunch of work on LGBT, like sexual ethics in the Bible relative to LGBT stuff. Yeah. He started going down the path of like, you know, maybe the church just needs to like change its mind and like be open. I mean, maybe this isn't that big a deal to God. Maybe he would it's rather us have a good name, right? And then he talked to a friend of his and the guy was like, Preston, like read everything that's said about sexuality in the Bible. And you ask yourself if you think the biblical authors think that that's optional. And non-essential. Yeah. Right. And the answer is like, if if you read, if you go through the Bible and you do that, you actually do that practice. You read all the stuff said about sexuality. You say, is this, are they talking about this? Like this is not an essential thing. You will not get that impression if you're reading carefully. Yeah. Like you, you'll get the impression that like, this is literally at the heart of your, the whole being a human being and right. you can't, you can't minimize this. I think and that's so, an, 
yeah, go important. Ahead. I think it's important. But I, it's I think- an interesting concept, though, because I'm thinking of like, so I talked to Vince about this, too, and it's like, we, yeah, we need to unite around the gospel. And then when you, th- when you say the gospel, people think of like Jesus coming to earth, dying for our sins. Now we're saved. But I think when you were explaining the gospel, you weren't just explaining the four books called the gospels, uh, you know, the gospel of Mark and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Mm-hmm. You were saying the Bible as a whole is the gospel. It's a representative. It's, it's a good news. Right. Am I wrong about that? Sort of. I mean. I mean, like, even if we agreed that the Gospels, those four books, I mean, there's a lot in there that's more than just the Gospel. I mean, it's, the, yeah. you know, like the whole Sermon on the Mount is in there, right? Sure. So, like, so, for example, how you treat the poor is all through Luke. Well, is how you treat the poor essential and essential, right? And if it's, if Democrats are right, is being a Democrat now, therefore, go, a Gospel essential, right? Like, I, I don't think people understand what they're saying, it, unless all they mean is, I mean, believe, in Jesus, believe in Jesus for your salvation and you'll be saved. Yeah. Right. And then you're like, okay, who is Jesus? Is yeah. Jesus the son of God? Right. Well, let's not get too specific. What is it? How are we saved when we believe in Jesus? Does he atone for us? Was he or is it believe in Jesus's existence or believe in Jesus's teachings? Right. Or is it the myth of Jesus? If you believe in the myth of Jesus, God saves you because you'll become a good person. Like, like people say stuff and they don't mean like anything like the same thing by it. And then they wonder why they get in fights later. So on one level, I totally agree with you that the church needs to pursue unity. But I also think that part of that unity is that it has to be substantive unity. Other, otherwise, it becomes right. infantile and it becomes like um, impotent unity. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody says they're unified and nothing happens. And the church is supposed to be this really potent body of people who really love each other. And that's super hard to do. Mm-hmm. And godliness is required for it. And so it, it, it's not. Yeah. So I. I so I don't, I mean, I wish it was kind of like, you know, if we all just got along better, things would be better. And I'm like, yeah, except that's not really. That, that's annoying. Yeah, that's annoying. If it was that simple, it would be done. Right. So um, where, so real quick, I think like last question, we're like an hour okay. into this. Where then is that line? I know, I know we're off of hell right. a little bit, but it feels like it's part of the same thing. Where is, where do you personally draw that line then to where it's like, okay, I can't really associate with this church or like, I can't really associate with this doctrine or work with these people. I mean, that's the way that I feel about crew and people get all over my crap for that because I think that they're preaching the wrong gospel about hell and as a whole thing and, and everybody gets, and you can't do that. It's just about the gospel. But I feel like that that's very essential to the gospel and they just completely miss out. And so where do you draw the line? Um, I don't tend to draw a line. Um, generally speaking, what I believe is this, is that um, what is true produces all the goods that God wants us to experience when we combine them with faith. And so anywhere where you aren't believing the truth, especially if it's a truth that God has revealed, there's always going to be a natural and functional spiritual consequence to that because it's wrong, right? Now, some of those consequences are going to be so bad as to be ruinous. Mm-hmm. That is, that the person isn't saved or it will destroy their faith, right? And that, or they'll lose their faith or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, that could be just you have one doctrine really wrong. It could be that you have like six, quote, I'm doing quotes in the air now, non-essential doctrines wrong, which creates a, a way of thinking 
that leads to a continual doubting of some fundamental thing related to God's character that leads you to then believe that God isn't really good or not really there. And like that creates a snowball that ultimately wrecks yeah. you. And so Which is what Satan can use. He, he, he yeah. tries to use scripture against us. And all the it's time. sometimes it is amazing how little a thing can snowball into the destruction of faith. That's why, listen, that you think people think that fundamentalists are just like born crazy. They're not born crazy. They're very intelligent people. Well, here's what they know. Any little thing you get wrong could destroy you. I so mean, every, listen, so therefore, everybody has everything has to be right. People listen to John's uh, testimony, and he almost killed himself because he couldn't figure out some of this stuff. Yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, I think that that's huge. I, I that yeah. So that's just so people kill themselves because they give up on this stuff, right? Yeah. It goes both ways, and so like, so what the fundamentalist knows, and they're right about this, is that if you get even one little doctrine wrong. It can lead to getting two more wrong and three more wrong into totally leading you the wrong direction until it ultimately shipwrecks your faith. So, like, mm-hmm. what doctrine doesn't matter? And the answer is they all matter. Yeah. All of them. That's why Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Everything. Everything mm-hmm. means everything. So, now, when I come into contact with somebody who then disagrees with me on one of those things I believe is part of the everything— well, then I have to make a choice, right? So what I try to do is I try to I try to participate with them as long as I feel like we're doing something fruitful. Sure. So, for example, I'm not an egalitarian. I believe there are gender roles. I believe that elders in the church should be men. I believe that's a biblical thing. But I served in the United Methodist Church for seven years, and the United Methodist Church is an egalitarian denomination. We had women who were bishops and all that. I just dealt with it. I was like, yeah, I disagree with this, but I had I felt God would call me that church. And so I led in a certain kind of way, but when I could leave it, I did. Yeah. You know, so there's a, so, so I participate with people on the basis of how much I believe I can trust them. If somebody believes in false doctrines, that limits the amount of trust that I can give to that person. Sure. Right. And so that's, for me, that's a relative relationship. And they say the same thing about you. Yeah. And that's the whole, yeah. But, but yeah, I understand I understand what you're saying. Um, okay, so that was the last question I had. I don't know if you have anything, any final closing thoughts on this whole thing of hell. Um, do you? I, I just, I, I think it's important. That people who are naturally empathetic believe that not wanting to hurt others is a virtue, and it is a virtue, right? But it is an infantile virtue, right? So, like, you would teach a three-year-old not to hurt other people, right? But when, you, but you, if you just taught a thirteen-year-old they should live their life by that, you you would be abusing them as a parent, because a thirteen-year-old is now living in a more complicated world than that, where some people need to be told no, and stop, right? And that might hurt their yeah. feelings, and that's okay, right? So it's it's. You have to you have to start to live in a larger, more morally serious world in which hell is conceivable. If you live in a mental world in which hell is not conceivable, but there's a God that exists who's morally serious, there is something really screwed up in your theology. And you, I would argue maybe it's more important than the doctrine of hell, but for me, the doctrine of hell is like the canary in the coal mine. When people start to fudge on the doctrine of hell, they're losing something profound in either their doctrine of God, their doctrine of humanity, their doctrine of sin, like really key or the importance of the sacrifice of Christ or, and so on. 
So like I think that I think that um, if you if you if you're slipping on the doctrine of hell, you're not just slipping on the doctrine of hell. You're slipping on a lot of other things too. Now, I don't. I wouldn't argue that that's essentially true of annihilationism. I think it is definitely true of universalism. If you think everybody goes to heaven, you're off track, biblically speaking. That's not a Christian view, right? Um, and if you're an annihilationist, to the extent to which you are um, trying to defend God from looking bad because of his punitive nature, just be really careful. Be really, really careful. Because you might be totally wrong about that. And in in trying to defend God, you may be doing you may be doing the opposite of what you should be doing. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and I just think it's important for people to realize that it's not true that if you tell people what they want to hear, it's going to be good for them. Sometimes you need to offend people. They need to they need to go away mad at you. I mean, that's what I was just about to say. It feels like that was the whole point of why they murdered Jesus. Because he offended them, and and, and yeah. I mean Jesus was one of the most offensive people of all time, and and if right, I was just thinking about yeah. like sharing the gospel, and it's like telling people what they want to hear. Like, I just think about like what I didn't want to hear was the gospel, but when I heard it, like it's not our job. Like Paul says, it's like I I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Mm-hmm. And it's like you, our only jobs as Christians is to share the whole gospel. And not try to make the gospel look pretty so people accept it or whatever. Just share it. And whatever happens, that's what's up to God. And I think that, like, it feels like that has a pretty good track record through time. Like, we're here and we believe in Jesus. Like, that's worked. So trying to screw with the gospel, it, it right, like you said, it, you might, we just want to be careful with that. I, I mean, because you can, you can screw up people's lives. And so... Yeah, that I mean, I, I think one of the things, like, if you if you if you're not sure about this, you're listening. I'll say this, and you're like, I'm not sure about that. Um, read Acts chapter 20 and listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus when he leaves them. What he says is, he's listen, I am innocent of your blood, meaning like their damnation. Like if anything bad happens to them, he's innocent. He says because I did not shrink back from declaring to the entire council of God. Now that's there's two really important points there. One is he didn't just tell them the gospel. He told them the entire counsel of God. That's everything that God had to say in his wisdom to them, right? Which is yeah. the same thing as Jesus saying, teach them to obey everything I commanded. And then secondly, he says he didn't give in to what would have motivated him not to do it. He said, I didn't shrink back, meaning out of fear, I didn't not do what I was supposed to do. I didn't hold anything back because I was afraid, mm. right? And if you want to be a faithful um witness for Christ, if you want to be Christ's in that way, there is nothing virtuous about holding back the truth from people. Jesus, Revelation. Was, very, Jesus was very contextualized. He told stories that people would understand. He was very winsome. And in many cases, he was drawing people in. And then other at other moments, he told things that cut like a knife. Same yeah. thing with the Apostle Paul. He's Apparently, he was very sweet and kind of person, and yet you read some stuff in his letters and he's like, look, like you guys are awful. And he doesn't hold back at all. So it, it's not an issue of like, well, you should just be nicer. No, it's harder than that. You need to yeah. know when to be soft in your words and when to be hard and confrontational in your words. And different situations require different responses, and you need to become mature enough to know when which is which. Yeah. 
It says in the verse in Revelation where it gives a long list of the the like virtues of who's not going to heaven, and one of them is a cowards. There will be no cowards in heaven, and it feels like that is feels like yeah. that's kind of that that's what we're talking about. So that's pretty scary stuff. Yeah, I'm not a coward. Actually, I probably am. But um, anyways, is anything anything else? I I think yeah. I mean read the whole book of Acts because you see that the apostles say what they think regardless the entire time and they get their crap kicked out of them over yeah. and over again. And then they rejoice for some reason because they're on whatever. Like they look like psychopaths the entire book. And so it's like that, if that's what it means, there's you know, have you read the Hawaiian pigeon version of the Bible? No. The Hawaiian pigeon is the funniest version of the Bible ever. It's 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 in this language called a Hawaiian pigeon, and it's like, it's like dumb, dumb down English. And so the Book of Acts is called Jesus People, and that's the way that they describe them. And I think that that's good. And like the the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Jesus People. Like I mean, if you look at the Jesus People, that's what they did, and we're supposed to be Jesus People too. So uh, read Acts. It's funny though. Re- re- don't read it in Hawaiian pigeon. Like, you'll just laugh the whole time. But it's it's yeah. So, anyways, we're gonna have a part two with Tom soon, mm-hmm. and that'll be fun. Um, besides that, I don't think I have anything left. So, make sure to like and subscribe and whatever. Do what you want with this. Um, we'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you. Bye.